Episode 3. Please listen to Episode 2 before listening to this episode, and listen to Episode 1 before listening to Episode 2. Otherwise, the story will make little sense or possibly be viewed as some sort of -of out-of-sequence work of genius like a Tarantino or Christopher Nolan movie. Chapter 7. Life on and adjacent to the streets. While I was splitting my time between fake school and butlering, halfway across the world, a 14-year-old Vietnamese girl was slicing the neck of a chicken for dinner and for fun. Her name was Pei Ching. We became pen pals. If the show Cheers didn't use the joke that Woody and Coach were pen pals and that they traded pens, I would use that joke, Pei Ching thought. Meanwhile, back in the United States of America... I was beginning to realize that my literally tender sex with Mrs. O was becoming increasingly unhealthy. In anticipation of our encounters, I had developed pre-traumatic stress syndrome. Her voracious sexual appetite became more decadent and perverse. She made me wear a Richard Nixon mask and oven mitts during sexual congress. Preclimactic limericks were required. She paid a fortune to install high-end glory holes with ornate crown molding, which in addition to depersonalizing our relationship was also fundamentally problematic as the molding protrusion pushed one's package back, thereby causing a greater required length for glands emergence even with full turgidity. The awkward movement and abrasion caused my testicles to become swollen and pendulous, perpetually swinging like the bob of a grandfather clock. So I looked in the yellow pages for a new job. I started with, quote, guy with pendulous testicles, end quote but those jobs were all taken. Instead, I found work in a restaurant themed like an elementary school cafeteria. Because of the gimmick, the resourceful owner and chef was able to legally employ school-age kids like me as waiters at less than minimum wage. We served patrons little milk cartons paired with tater tots and sloppy joes. Unfortunately, the chef had severe OCD and he would neaten the sloppy joes. Despite his insistence, nobody wanted an organized joe. The restaurant went bust, I would later learn that the chef was murdered by mutinous juice box straw puncture strikes. With a destitute family and a school both full of bullies and spurious information, I did the unthinkable and joined a gang. Luckily, the gang's uniform was that same cartoonish dog fetch this t-shirt and short shorts combo that had served me so well in school and in my short-lived butler career. It was an old-school gang, West Side Story style. We mostly snapped our fingers in unison and then snapped other people's fingers not in unison, after which we would seize their wallets, jack their cars, and sing a quick tune. To look tough, we rolled up our white t-shirt sleeves into which we inserted cigarette boxes. However, in addition to being egregiously anachronistic, smoking was frowned upon even by gangs, so we instead adhered nicotine patches to our bare upper arms. I became hooked. I was soon using eight patches of Klelpers. The gang's leader, nicknamed Vaberloke, took me under his wing. He gave me street-smart advice he learned from living on the edge. For example, he told me that if I ever went to jail, I should find the biggest, toughest inmate in the yard, avoid him, and then punch the smallest guy in the yard. The inmates would defer to me and my common sense thereafter. Chapter 8. The Big House. Not to be confused with the big house I was just working at as a butler. Remember that part? I did end up going to jail. I was arrested for rebroadcasting an account of a baseball game without the express written consent of Major League Baseball, a joke stolen from the TV show Police Squad, or maybe it was in the Naked Gun movie, Pei Wing noted when she heard about it. The juvenile detention camp, which, true to its name, was rife with sophomoric immaturity, was nonetheless brutal. One night, while I was sleeping, I was assaulted by fellow inmates who flogged me with bars of soap placed in pillowcases and socks. 
While the strikes were painful, the beating led to the invention of laundry detergent. You're welcome. Bruised body and ego, I decided to escape. I used a spoon to scrape against a wall, very gradually making an impression. Little by little, the impression grew. I then complained to the warden about the unsightly divot in my wall, and I was immediately released. I was nine years old, and I already had a criminal record. I decided to run away. To become a hobo, I grabbed some charcoal to make number sign marks on my face like in the cartoons. Few people know that this is the origin of the social media hashtag. At least that's what I was taught in my school. I fashioned a kerchief to a stick to hold my belongings, which, by the way, allows for very little contents to be stored. In fact, it's perhaps the worst possible method to carry one's belongings. It puts repeated stress on the collarbone, and it's bulky, and yet it allows for virtually no possessions. I pled with my fellow hobos to consider alternative luggage options, but my efforts were quickly quashed by the luggage lobby known as Big Suitcase. Not to be confused with the Lobby Lobby, where you check into a hotel early and they say they'll temporarily store your bags in a lobby alcove and you can use the premises, but you can't enter your room. And you're like, well, how long is it going to be? And they say, check back in an hour. And you're like, an hour, is it worth going to the pool? But then you get all chlorine all over your skin and you're like, does the pool count as a shower or does it make you have to take a shower? I didn't have room in my pathetic minuscule kerchief pouch to store a bathing suit so the point was moot. All I had room for was a stapler, a stringless yo-yo, and that weird foot measuring device they have at shoe stores. That will be all I would need. On the freight trains, I read anything I could find, but all I could find was my dad's pornography. The porn, which is short for porno, was outdated, featuring pictures of women with unkempt nether regions and reasonable, unaltered breasts. A fellow hobo took a ravenous interest in the material, reading the magazines over and over, scribbling notes in the margins, dog-earing pages, and scrutinizing it with the concentration of a professor perusing a physics textbook. That man was future President Jimmy Carter. True to the myth, the only thing President Carter liked more than my dad's pornography were peanuts. He consumed enormous amounts of peanuts and peanut-based products, and he would often declare how George Washington Carver's invention of peanut butter was the best thing both since and for sliced bread. Chapter 9. Adventures in the Arctic. Spelled with a silent C, and then with a non-silent C. The freight train took me to Alaska, where I was dumped out along with 15,000 Suzanne Summers workout VHS cassettes which comprised the bulk of the train freight. It was part of an AmeriCorps initiative meant to combat native tribes' populations' obesity and subsequent diabetes. There I learned that Eskimos did indeed have over 30 words for snow, but none for superfluous. I also quickly learned that there were minus one words for Eskimo, as it is no longer an acceptable term and could get your whole book canceled like in Dr. Seuss's case. So I acknowledge and apologize for my poor judgment one sentence ago, and in advance for the usages of the word Eskimo that will follow. I first tried to get a job as a butler, but igloos are too small and they also don't exist. And so, igloo-less, I was forced to survive in the wild. Now understand that the closest I had ever come to spending time in the wild was the Antarctic Study Abroad Wilderness Internship that the school had offered. As I knew from my studies, while it is often assumed that the winters are toughest in the Northlands, it's actually the summers that are most intolerable, when the bugs emerge in mass, mosquitoes, mites, murder hornets, assault bees, and rape wasps. The first thing I needed to do was to construct a shelter, so I went to the local junkyard and scrounged up some corrugated tin to form a roof, and some corrugated pickle slices discarded from fast food burgers to form the walls. 
Unfortunately, the big bad wolf blew my house down. But then my old friend the Yeti came to the rescue and pummeled the living bejesus out of the wolf who was left with only dead bejesus. Into the wild I went. I wandered the forest aimfully, looking for a rumored community hidden deep within the hinterlands. While a huge fan of the taiga, I abhorred the tundra, but I nonetheless pressed on. After trudging through the dumbass tundra for days, I found it, a shadow community made up of retired NBA seven-footers. This would become my new home.